You are listening to the golden age of aviation with Breitling, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. This series has traced various histories of the aviation industry during this period, from the pilots and cabin crew who reminisce the excitement and glamour of air travel, to the ad execs who were dreaming up iconic airline logos and campaigns that inspired people to board planes back then and still inspire designers and collectors around the world today. Today we're going to be looking at the future of aviation. Last week we discussed whether supersonic had a role to play in it, and this week we'll find out if another golden age could ever be had, or if we are indeed already in one. This is the Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling, and I'm Chloe Potter. And today I'll be handing the conversation over to Tom Edwards and his guests. Oh my gosh, every time you take off, you remember it. It's the best. You leap into the sky and you're free. It's, it's wonderful. I love it. Flying is awesome. Just awesome. The training back then was quite glamorous. We all had to have the same hairdo, the same makeup. It was very romanticized. And, and the travel posters and so on romanticized you know, where you might go. And of course, people were much less familiar with all these other places than they are today. But that was part of the, the allure, is that you got on board this aircraft and you were treated like a king or a queen. And, you know, once you got there, you were rested and relaxed. And at least that we was the idea. had to have good figures. <laughs> and uh, uh, we also wore a hat and gloves and a string of pearls. And we uh, loved being uh, the air hostess of the sky. You know, was it really like that? I was part of that. The idea of an exotic destination, very high-class surroundings, somehow you would be in a bubble of classiness, the obvious example being great luxury liners. How can you reproduce that in a plane? They tried. Hyper-super service. Your every need attention. 1962 was an extraordinary year, particularly in New York City, particularly in the United States. Kennedy was president. John Glenn had just circled the Earth. Uh, the space race was on with the Russians. Kennedy announced that we'd have a man on the moon by the end of the decade, which was really an extraordinary concept at the time. And, you know, anything was possible. But what, what a lot of people don't understand about the Concorde story is that it was created with the idea that it would be for everyone. And the, I, the idea that there was this kind of utopian ideal behind the next logical step in transportation is what was driving Concord. And we had the stewardesses and we had the, um, the police band with us. I was able to break out of Hong Kong with them and work all over the world. Everything about the graphics and the packaging uh, has this um, enthusiasm for fast, the future, the speed, it's better, it's tomorrow, it's here, it's now. I'm Tom Edwards, and to wrap up this series of the Golden Age of Aviation, I'm joined here in the studio by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, and on the line by our contributing editor and another aviation aficionado, Tristan McAllister. Welcome both. Now, we've just heard from many of the voices that have appeared on the series so far. Pilots, ad execs, airline staff, designers, cabin crew, and other enthusiasts who were part of, or just love, this era we've been looking at between the 50s and 70s. 
Let's recap, Tyler. For you, what does make this a golden age? Is it a little of all the above mentioned? Well, it is. And I think when we talk about the golden age, this was really when jet aviation, of course, took hold. And like so many things, I mean, if we think back to, you know, in contemporary terms, you know, when the first e-vehicles came out, if you think about when a brand like BMW did their big push even a few years ago for that vehicle, there was all kinds of, you know, ad campaigns and the sort of look to the future what would happen with mobility. And I think it was the same thing then. So much of this was also about the marketing of that era because someone bought a DC-8, you know, someone decided to invest in a fleet of 707s, whatever it was. And, and this was also because these aircraft were opening up new markets at the time as well. So I think a lot of what we think about, Tom, as well, is really sort of mythology that goes with all of those great posters. It goes with those first radio campaigns. And there's a physicality beyond the jets to all of this as well, which was this was a time when, of course, it wasn't just the travel agent was important, but that airlines, of course, had dedicated ticket offices. So there was this whole built world, a different sort of built infrastructure around both the brands and and the aircraft at the time, which makes a part of the mythology today. And just to that point about mythology, I wonder, because we've been hearing through the season about lots of people who are involved in exactly those sorts of elements Tyler was talking about there. Is a more germane question to ask at this point what this business of commercial aviation can or or should try and learn from this recent history? Yeah, I think, of course, you know, what, one of the most interesting conversations that I had over the course of this series, and it, it did come up in um, one of the episodes, was a conversation with the futurist who said, if we look back on the golden era of aviation, if you look at it as a whole, there are a lot of things that weren't that great. You know, the airplanes were loud. It was expensive to travel. The aura of what was created around it, perhaps the advertising and sort of the idea of being able to fly across the globe in just a day, that was sort of glamorous. But there were bigger lessons that could be taken from there. You know, the idea of attention to passenger service, the idea of creating a world that was different than one that came before it, where it was more connected, where people had choice, where people were able to sort of get out there and sort of move beyond their communities or their region. Those are sort of big themes that came out of those interviews. But taking that forward, I think there are a lot of things that we can learn. And I think that we can be inspired by what perhaps that golden era was in our minds. But truth is, we're headed into an era where there's ever more choice for passengers. We're headed into an era where it is less expensive to fly than it used to be. And when we talk about trends, when we look at the passenger expos and we hear what's coming out of things like the Paris Air Show, which is actually going on as we record this, we hear these thoughts of customization. We hear these thoughts of these concept ideas coming from both Boeing and Airbus, where that passenger experience has been ever more enhanced. They are now talking about with these super long haul flights, like those that Qantas wants to do out of Sydney to places like Europe. We hear talk of bunks in aircraft. We hear talk of bigger lounges in aircraft. So the idea that that stuff has necessarily gone away is not really true. I think we could see in the next few years, all of that coming back way more affordably, coming back way more comfortably. So, you know, we could be very well headed into a golden era. Now that said, that won't be the standard, but I think that there will be things within the aviation world in the coming years that really are a bit of a renaissance. And Tyler, that's an interesting point. And Tristan's right, it was raised several times actually during the course of these episodes that if we look at connectivity, if we look at customization, if we look at consumer choice, 
the golden age, well, it's now or it's ahead. I mean, what do you think about that? I think there's a couple of parts to it because, of course, we see ever more efficient aircraft. And, of course, we see on one side... Yes, there is more competition, but then, you know, in certain markets as well, you can look at a market like Germany on our doorstep, where there used to be a player of scale as a competitor as recently as as really, what, a year and a half, two years ago. They're gone now. Um, I mean, here you have a market where there's actually very little domestic competition. And then I think you also have a big call right now of major tourist destinations around the world. There is this call, of course, for curbing tourism. And I think also a big discussion in Sweden, you know, you have this moment of flight shaming going on, big discussions in Switzerland about, is it just simply too cheap to fly? And are we going to see real taxation put through, you know, both to support infrastructure, offset noise, make neighbors happy, all those things that you need to do. I think that there are some other things that could unsettle this and not to sort of be a voice of opposition to Tristan because I'm sure most of it is going to go the way that he's pointing. But I think there's a few things you see on the horizon as well, which also might mitigate that, that maybe air travel, Tom, you know, does, I'm not saying it's going to become the preserve of just of the rich, but maybe we don't see as many people jumping on an aircraft as we have done maybe over the last three or four years with the surge of low-cost carriers. And I guess, Tristan, if we reflect on really the zenith of that premium travel we heard just recently on this show about supersonic, and we talked about Concorde in particular, what I found really arresting in that episode in particular was this sort of adoration, veneration for this aircraft, if nothing else, and for what it represented. Is that something that definitely belongs in the past, Tristan? I mean, whether it's supersonic technology per se for a mass market or just this idea of something that was so innovative and so exciting, you know, that signature shape, will we see the likes of that again, do you think? You could see that shape, perhaps. I think there are even some concepts out there that look very similar to it. But I think the bigger question there is, with Concorde, it was about noise and fuel efficiency. I mean, that that jet was just not necessarily that viable for a large part of its lifespan. But I think what saved it was that it sat very square squarely in the, on the high-end part of the market. And as long as there were people willing to pay for it, and they could keep it in the sky. Uh, and they did keep it in the sky for years longer than perhaps it should have been flying. But that could come back. I really see a day where there is some supersonic travel. I think there are some startups, and I think that you've even seen agencies like NASA get very close to saying, we could be doing this in the next few years. They've developed technology that's not nearly as noisy, technology that's far more fuel efficient. And we've even seen some major carriers like those in Japan say that they're very interested in even doubling down saying they will take some of these first jets. So what I think we will see in that world is it will be a smaller aircraft. It will be really targeted at the premium market and it will be in very specific cities. So very specific city pairs. So That could very well come back, but it has a lot of caveats. And then it also has to get past a lot of regulatory hurdles. In many countries around the world, a lot of governments have just straight up banned commercial supersonic travel, mainly because of the noise. So the onus is really on the airlines and the manufacturers to prove to governments that these jets can, in fact, fly without shattering eardrums. And then perhaps we'll see an era of supersonic open back up. And I'd have to agree with that, Tom. I mean, I think what Tristan is saying as well, when we have uh, so many tech entrepreneurs and others trying to really vault us into outer space, and somehow there seems to be considerable excitement around all of that. And oddly, that whole environmental discussion goes out the window. We have, you know, all of these launch pads, we have all types of vehicles being developed, and no one's really talking about that. So I think somewhere between flying around 
in an Airbus 220, 320, 330, and then a space pod, I definitely think there is room for supersonic travel. And, and as we've heard, there are definitely players, and we're talking about clients, the end user, the airlines, who are willing to take a punt on this. Let's reflect on potential other innovations then. Tristan, if we look towards the future, if there's a place for supersonic, but it's a little bit TBC, what could some of the innovations that maybe reshape this space look like? Do we need to look more at fuel efficiency? It's maybe not as sexy as aircraft design, but it's certainly high on the target list of airlines and manufacturers, isn't it? Is that where we should be looking? I think what's interesting about that question is that we've actually seen airframers, you know, the OEMs, the Boeings, the Airbuses, the Embraers of the world, step into the composite conversation with some of their aircraft. I mean, frankly, the Boeing Dreamliner, the 787 Dreamliner, was ahead of its time in that it was unlike any other aircraft in terms of what it was made of, in terms of the carbon fibers, the composites they were using. A lot of jets that have come to market after the Dreamliner actually don't have those carbon fiber composites in them. Building an aircraft from complete scratch with materials that haven't been used in an airframing process before is a huge challenge. It's a massive cost. And so a lot of airframers have sort of stepped away from that a little bit. Like even the Airbus A350 doesn't have the advancement in terms of composites that the Boeing Dreamliner did. So I think that should tell you something about at least the risk that airframers are willing to take on. And the other part of that question is that airport infrastructure is so set in stone in so many ways. The jetways only look a certain way. The tarmacs are constructed in a way that really hasn't changed for a number of decades. To retool and rethink about how these aircraft look, so major advancements in how the wings look and how the fuselage looks and perhaps the length of jets, all of those things, those are things that are going to really challenge airframers in terms of existing infrastructure in the world. I mean, bringing the A380, the Airbus A380 to airports was a huge challenge. The aircraft was just too big. You know, the 777X that Boeing is will soon flight test, they had to make wingtips on that jet that actually literally flipped up so that the jet could fit at airports. So, you know, some of the constraints here, it's not so much about the technology that we have, it's more so about the infrastructure that can handle these jets. I mean, this also dovetails into a conversation about the airport in Berlin that just hasn't opened yet. In terms of specking how to get new jets in there, I mean, that had been a huge part of the conversation. So that's one part of it. And then, you know, the other side, you mentioned connectivity, and we mentioned customization on board. I think those things are going to be the bigger changes that we see. We're going to see seat technology perhaps change. We might see the introduction of lounges on certain jets as we already have. I saw that Boeing was piloting a program where overhead bins could actually tell you based on the light that they're emitting whether or not they're full. We see conversations about introducing virtual reality in the cabin as in-flight entertainment. I mean, those are all sort of quick, easy wins that we'll certainly see in the short term. And so just briefly on that, could the real next golden age be driven then by what actually happens on the ground? We talk a lot about airport infrastructure and connectivity in terms of transport, things like that. It sometimes doesn't get into this conversation, but maybe that's the next key battleground. Up to a point, and a number of airlines are looking at different projects and products that go with it. And I think there's certainly a competitive space, whether you look at in Europe, let's say the two big players in the premium arena, the likes of, of course, Lufthansa and Air France being driven straight to aircraft. How much do they remove the lounge experience for everything else? How quickly can they get their top passengers from curbside or trackside through security into a lounge? And in the aircraft seat, is it more 
interesting to say, do we cut that time down as much as possible? Recognize, of course, airports are also prone to delays. Or do we want to make the experience so great that someone does show up two hours early and they're spending time in a great environment, which, of course, is brought to you by that airline and its partners. So I think there's a lot of work that's being done there. But I also think we've been party to conversations as well, which also push it a little bit too far. You know, what is really sort of within scope and out of scope for your travel? So let's say, Tom, I heard one conversation about an aviation or an airline, which was looking at you come off the aircraft, they know that you've been on the road for a considerable amount of time and you've opted in or you have the ability to opt in to say, actually, I need some milk and eggs and I want some toasting bread as well. And that is waiting for you at the baggage carousel or something else. And I think that is just prone to problems. And in fact, I don't think it should really be the airline's problem to be thinking about what am I doing for breakfast or what am I going to be doing for my late night snack? That is just opening up a whole logistics issue. Please focus on getting my luggage there. Do the things that you're supposed to do as an airline, but don't listen to the consultant who said, oh, by the way, you could have a 0.003 uplift on revenue if you're able to do more after sales or after sales upselling. And again, Airlines are looking at these types of things, but I think that's really overstretch. Oh, I am thinking about a nice fry up there now. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about marketing because you started off, Tyler, by talking about the ad campaigns and this sort of thing. And I wonder if, in some ways, we could almost sort of subhead this whole series the golden age of corporate communications or the golden age of advertising, certainly. And at the risk of partially repeating ourselves, will we ever see the likes of that again? Because the single image ads or just the name of a destination, no other copy required. There's a certain purity to that that we love from a kind of commercial art point of view. But is that an idea that sadly we can't delve back into? I think we should, and not just for emotional or a trip down memory lane reasons. There is something about the singularity that we see. In fact, I just went and bought a Swiss Air poster and it wasn't part of this illustrated series. And I think a lot of people who love the great Swiss Air work really sort of gravitate towards a lot of the great illustration pieces that they did. This was just a beautiful postcard. It's a little bit out of focus. It sort of captures that mirage feeling of hot sand. You just have a plane of sand and then you just have blue sea and sky and it's photography. It's early 1970s. And it just says Swiss Air, Mediterranean, Mediterranean. That's it. It's so evocative and it's so strong. And I think at a time when airlines want to be on multiple social channels, they want to hit you with pop-ups digitally, I think there's room for some considered cut-through. That Now that cut-through can live digitally. It doesn't always have to be about a price play. Just having an outstanding image of just says Mediterranean, fine, then I'll go to your website and I'll see that you can take me to Ibiza, you take me to Mykonos, I can go to the new airport at Paros, whatever. Get me there. And I think sometimes we're just a little bit too prescriptive in saying we'd go this many times a day and prices from 49 euros or $39. And I think somehow we can strip it back and there should be a little bit more clarity. Well, Tristan, just to that point, we've mentioned so many airlines that sort of embody some of these things, a bit of that nostalgia actually that Tyler was reflecting on there, your Pan Ams, TWA, Braniff, we talked about that and the styles of their cabin crew. Is there an airline, Tristan, for you, which is the embodiment of, even if it is a nostalgia tinged, one that stands perhaps above all the others? There's a few. The first of which that comes to mind, of course, is Finnair because I think they're pretty good at sort of being themselves, but also, you know, their flight attendants wear gloves when you board and they have a certain way of presenting themselves and they're they're super capable, but their uniforms look great. And I wouldn't say their onboard product is amazing, but in terms of service and in terms of them sort of taking care of the passenger, 
they're very good at what they do. I mean, the other one that comes up a lot is Singapore Airlines and Singapore. That's for reasons like they're Singapore girls, which by a lot of accounts these days is a bit outdated. That's almost like a step backwards in terms of seeing women as flight attendants specifically. So I think there are some good examples of it in the world, but also there are examples that I think the world at large is trying to sort of push against. So I think there's a tension in some of these brands that are iconic, are, are classic, and where do they go from here? And I think that's another question we could be asking. And Tyler, to that point, what about where in the world this innovation comes from? It's particularly if we throw the gaze forwards a little bit. In the episode that Tristan brought us of this show, he was talking about the Pacific Northwest and this almost like umbilical connection with the development of this golden age of commercial travel. Do we look to the States, Western Europe? You've mentioned Germany. Is there another region? You know, people, some may say, oh, you know, you need to look to the Gulf for real innovations now. Where should we be looking? I think there are so many players involved. Of course, you can say that because of Boeing and because of all of the capabilities and suppliers and innovators sitting in the Pacific Northwest, that all makes sense. You also then need a willing client, and that is an airline. And anyone who follows the trade press knows that you know whether it's Boeing, whether it's Airbus, they're in very, very deep conversations with their clients. So if we look at, let's say, the Project Sunrise a little bit, which Tristan was touching on, that this is an initiative and one which we've even offered an award up to in the magazine for one of the most anticipated programs. This is Qantas saying that they want to go long haul, nonstop from Sydney, from Melbourne, from Perth, and to reach the Americas and to reach all over Europe. No more stopping down in Dubai or Singapore or elsewhere. Now, they can only project and dream by having, of course, a series of considered conversations, briefings with the airframers. So I would say, you know, right now, I think we could probably be looking at the Qantas HQ as certainly a place just by sheer nature of geography. And then, of course, there's a number of offshoots. Now that, you know, what Qantas is obviously discussing and developing, that will end up being applied to their cabin and to their ground product. But of course, out of that whole process with Boeing or potentially Airbus as well, there's going to be a number of other offshoots, which then are going to inspire... ANA, then Finnair or Swiss start to think about you know how they can apply those things. So, and listen, by nature of what we're talking about, where the aircraft take us, that means that innovation can happen really in any corner at the moment, and 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 certainly where you've got deep-pocketed, ambitious airlines who who see that their unique geography is going to allow them to be a global player. Let's wrap up very briefly. Tristan, I'll come to you just first of all. We talked a lot about, is this the golden age? Will it ever come again? If you could teleport yourself, Tristan, either into the future to some aforementioned date, I don't know, 2100, or alternatively, back in time to a choice moment of this golden age, which option would you choose, Tristan? You know, I think about this from time to time being the nerd that I am, but I think I'd probably go 20 to 30 years ahead of where we are now because that's when a lot of fleets will renew. I mean, we've seen a massive renewal of fleets in the past 10 years. So I think 20 to 30 years is when we'll sort of naturally see this next generation of aircraft come. I'm really curious to see what happens. I think this conversation around supersonic is very interesting. I think the OEMs now are, they do have in development along with the government agencies around the world, um, aerospace agencies around the world, um, new technologies that could perhaps radically change how we travel. I'm interested in seeing a jet that doesn't necessarily look like the jets that we see today, just because I'm curious to know what they'll look like. And I think that 20 or 30 years from now, we'll have that. I do think Tyler was right. I do think that we've seen this massive sort of democratization of how we get around the world. And I think the LCCs will have 
faded in a way. I don't know that those models are sustainable. I think that regulatory regimes will have changed, and I think it will have forced the industry to sort of take a hard look at itself and emissions and all of those things. And I'm curious to see what that looks like. I do think that going back in time would be really interesting and be fun to sort of be sitting in those seats and getting that service and to be one of the people actually walking through the Saarinen terminal at JFK, you know, the old TWA flight center and really taking it in as a place where I was boarding my jet. But, you know, that era is gone. I'm hopeful to see what happens because so much innovation has already happened in the past 30, 40 years. I can't really even imagine where we'll be 30, 40 years from now. And Tyler, Tristan throws you the keys to his time machine. I probably I doesn't I have keys. Know. Let's well, say you get them. If Tristan, where, where, if, where are you setting your controls I know, to if take you? If you wanted sort of Tristan to teleport, then why is he sitting in New York right now? I mean, he could be sitting here. Listen, I feel fortunate that I was able to catch the tail end of the supersonic era. It was great that I was able to fly Concorde a couple of times. You know, I, so I wouldn't go back that far. I, I would be sort of happy to go back to probably a period in the 1980s before we had you know, the heavy-handed security of the day. I think back to one of the airlines that we've been focusing on a little bit you know, is the golden era of Swiss Air. And, and I remember there was a time there was the hidden lounge. If you knew where that white buzzer was and you were one of their better passengers, then you would go into this amazing room with lots of other chambers. And you really would see on one side Greek Orthodox priests in one room, and then you would see the Armenian family with the son who had the handcuffed briefcase. I mean, I really, I saw these things. So I would be happy just to extend that sort of couple of years. I, I would like to go back to a time when all of those things were happening. Travel wasn't so rarefied. Route networks were bigger by that point, but we weren't in sort of, let's say, the cost-cutting era efficiency moment. And certainly we didn't have the same security pressures as today. Well, there you have it. One eye to the past, one eye to the future. That's what we do here on the Golden Age of Aviation. Tyler Brule, Tristan McAllister, thank you both for joining us. That brings us to the end of this series, The Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling. You can listen to all eight episodes at monocle.com or subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud and all your other favourite audio sources. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and Tom Edwards and I'm Chloe Potter. Wherever you are and wherever you're headed next, bon voyage. <laughs>